The following message was preached at Fondren Church on September 29th, 2019 by group's pastor, John Wood. It's the final message of the Paradox series entitled, Happiness Isn't What We Think. It's from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Due to a technical difficulty, there are a few minutes missing at the beginning of the message. Thank you for listening. All right, there we go. Hey, I'm glad you're here this morning. Thank you for being here. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Um, I'm finishing Robert's series, Paradox, where we look at uh, the, the, um, the foolish sayings of Jesus. No longer trying to be impressive or gain influence. They're not looking for someone to blame. They're not trying to assert themselves or conquer anything. Instead, the blessed, the happy, the congratulated, according to Jesus, desperately just want to get right with God. It's all they care about. And Jesus tells them that if that they're the very ones God rejoices over as they seek their happiness in Him. So the Beatitudes then, they, they shatter our settled assumptions and, they, and they, they, they destroy our comfortable patterns and they set us on an entirely new course. That idea fits really well in the series we've been in talking about the paradoxical teachings of Jesus. And if you've had conversations with me in the past, you know that I love like old school, like dead theologians and pastors. And when I say old school, I mean like 1600 and before, right? Good thing about those guys, like they can't become heretics, right? Because they've already written everything. But one of those guys would agree with where we're going with this. And John Calvin, we all know who John Calvin is. He says, discussing this passage, he says, Christ, therefore, in order to accustom his own people to bear the cross, exposes this mistaken opinion, that those are happy who lead an easy and prosperous life according to the flesh. And not only does Christ prove that they are in the wrong who measure the happiness of man by the present state, because of the distress, because the distress of the godly will soon be changed for the better, But he also exhorts his own people to patience by holding out the hope of a reward. The only consolation which mitigates and even sweetens the bitterness of the cross and of all afflictions is the conviction that we are happy in the midst of miseries. For our patience is blessed by the Lord and will soon be followed by a happy result. I think Calvin's right. It's important to note here that Jesus isn't then, He's not giving us a list of things to simply add to our lives that might give us a little bit more happiness as we kind of stumble forward through life. He's not telling us that if we add a little bit more meekness or a little bit more mercy or a little bit more peace to our already crowded lives, then He'll sprinkle some Jesus blessing on us and throw some happiness our way. Jesus refuses to be stuffed into the margins of our lives. And the Beatitudes are a package deal. We know that from the text also, because in verse 3 we have the phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have that phrase again at the end in verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what Matthew's doing there, he's bookending what Jesus is doing there. He's bookending the Beatitudes and saying that uh, they all go together. It's not a buffet menu. Jesus wants His followers to embrace all these things. He's calling us to embrace them all. He's calling us to to, to have all of these characteristics as we walk with Him. He wants us all poor in spirit if we walk with Him. He wants us all mourning. He wants us all meek and so forth. He's not giving us options. He's calling us to be all in. And that's striking, isn't it? 
Society is constantly screaming the unbeatitudes at us. And those who embrace the unbeatitudes are those who have no need for God. They're doing just fine on their own. They've got it made. They have no need for Jesus because He'll just get in their way and slow them down. If that's where you are this morning, seeking happiness and blessing in yourself, in what the world offers, Jesus' Beatitudes really won't mean much to you, and you'll find very little help there. You might need the Lord to wreck your world. And I pray that He'll do that so that He can give you real happiness and real blessing. But for those of us who realize our deep need for God and understand that He is the one who can make us truly happy, we reject the unbeatitudes and we take our place among the desperate, those whom Jesus calls blessed. So then let's look briefly at these beatitudes and look at them in contrast with the unbeatitudes and with the Lord's help, we'll see what real blessing and real happiness really is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or congratulations to the entitled, for this world lies at their feet. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, here's what Jesus is not telling us. He's not giving us orders to be mopey or grumpy or glum. We got got enough of that. He's not telling us that that we'll inherit the kingdom of heaven if we're a little bit more like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. My wife's favorite character from Winnie the Pooh, so I'd have to throw Eeyore in there. Jesus is telling us, though, that the poor in spirit are those who understand we have nothing to offer God but our brokenness. We have nothing we can impress God with, and we're not holding up our own self-importance as a reason why God should be grateful that we're on His team. The poor in spirit have gone all in with Jesus because they understand that they are completely spiritually bankrupt and they're completely spiritually powerless without Him. And isn't it just like Jesus to speak that way? Telling us that our very spiritual poverty, in our very spiritual poverty and our very depravity, that we gain Him? And He gives us the kingdom of heaven? We gain life by admitting that we're dead without Him. We gain life by losing it. But to the entitled, those who have no need for Jesus, those who trust themselves, those who find all their peace and all their confidence in their own abilities, finding their happiness and finding their fulfillment in the here and now, all that awaits them is is what this world can offer. The shiny, attractive, Bigger and supposedly better versions of the world that's always trying to outdo itself. But that always leads to betrayal, coldness, bitterness, dissatisfaction, emptiness. That's all that lies at the feet for those who don't need Jesus. So in a sense then, Jesus is saying to us here, you understand that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from me? and you bring nothing that should earn my favor, good. Now I can bless you. Now you're ready to receive the kingdom of heaven. Welcome. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Now we know that Scripture 
is very clear. It teaches us that God is near to the brokenhearted. There is pain and there's sadness and there's heartache and there's disappointment in this world that's nearly unspeakable. Sorrow will find us no matter if we're Christians or not. And if you're a believer, you have to have a theological category to put your suffering in. You you have to understand where to go in God's Word to seek comfort when tragedy strikes. There has to be a place that we run and seek refuge in so sorrow and, and devastation and sadness and brokenness won't just completely destroy us. So we take refuge in verses like, He binds up the brokenhearted. We take refuge in verses like, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We take refuge that He will make all things new. We love that Jesus calls Himself the man of sorrows who's well acquainted with grief. God will most certainly comfort sufferers. But this verse isn't referring to mourning about suffering and loss. This verse is talking about the people of God, the believers, the Christians, those of us who have believed Jesus and been saved by being broken over our sin. Mourning over that which breaks the heart of God and caused Him to shed His own blood to make us right with Him. That's why Jesus calls mourners blessed and blessed. And He calls His children to mourn their sin. When's the last time you wept over your sin? The tears that we shed over our sin, Jesus redeems calls us blessed, promises that He Himself will comfort us. There's a glory in our mourning that turns into our joy, that turns into His glory, that is our happiness. But the carefree, those who never give sin a second thought, those who go their own way, and are, they're going to be comfortable in this wretched world. There's no eternal happiness. There's no eternal blessing coming. There's only what's here and now. They're left, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, to glory in their shame. God calls His people to more. He has more for us than just the temporal, the fleeting pleasures of this world. He calls us to mourn over our sin, and He promises to turn it into blessing. Zephaniah 3.18. Guys, I promise, Zephaniah is awesome. Like, check out Zephaniah. The Lord will meet you in Zephaniah. It's not an extinct Old Testament prophet book. It's, it preaches Jesus. But in Zephaniah 3.18, Zephaniah says, The Lord will turn our shame into praise, into happiness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or, congratulations to the pushy, for they shall get ahead. Meekness is not a trait that we celebrate. Meekness has really never been a trait any culture has ever celebrated. We prefer loud and bold and in your face. We build monuments to greatness. We strive for lasting fame. We build statues to ourselves. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Those who are humble. Those who are gentle. They're not aggressively promoting themselves. This doesn't mean being a doormat. This doesn't mean being a pushover. There are things to stand up and fight for. 
But Jesus isn't calling it, he's, he's not calling us to have no backbone. But he is saying that to us as his people, he doesn't advance us or he doesn't value, he, do, he doesn't advance us the way the, the, the world would. We have so much pushy. We have so much self-importance. So much clamoring for position or recognition. Trying to get ahead because ultimately that's what, think, that's what we think will define us, will fulfill us, will give us joy. Ah, do we really need more of that? Do we really want to locate our happiness there? In my own performance? In this beatitude, Jesus is rehumanizing us. He's calling us to a life that's humble, a life that's quiet and gentle before Him. Let the world have its boasting and striving to one-up each other. Jesus promises the meek will inherit the earth. As one commentator put it, one day God will completely reclaim His earthly domain, and those who have become His children through faith in His Son will rule that domain with Him. That's far better than getting ahead in this world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. You know, we've got a natural category for hunger and thirst. They're, 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 they're basic human needs, and they take priority over everything else when we're deprived of them. It's real simple. We, we have to eat, we have to drink, or we die. It's a fact of life. Jesus is calling His people to long for Him in that same way. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, blessed are the righteous. Instead, He says, He blesses those who pursue a righteousness that they don't have. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not blessed are the righteous. All of our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. He is the one who makes us right with God. It's His righteousness we're called to pursue and crave and want more of. When we crave Him in that way, as we should crave food when we're starving, or water when we're parched, when we crave Him that way, Jesus Himself promises to satisfy us. What a promise from the Lord. Greed can't deliver that. It has nothing on the satisfaction Jesus gives. Getting all we can one-upping each other, stumbling over each other to get to the top, hoarding what we think will keep, will keep us on the top or get us ahead, only going to leave us wanting more. If you've ever mowed the grass at noon in July in Jackson, you know how thirsty you are when you're done, right? So you go into the, you, you finish mowing, I'm talking push mowing, like you guys who have the riding mowers, like you're not working, like that's not, that's easy. A ten-year-old can do that. Push mow in July, right? You go into the kitchen, you've got maybe some, some, some tea in the fridge, you've got some juice, you've got some beer, you've got some, some soft drink, whatever. Well, all of those are going to taste good. They're, they're going to they're gonna help you. you know, you're gonna, it's going to satisfy you. But 10 minutes later, man, you are just dying. Your mouth's dry, you're parched. You're like, man, why am I so thirsty? I just drank a gallon of sweet tea. Because it dehydrates you. You know you should drink water, right? Because it, it replenishes you and it will satisfy you. That's what it's like. We exhaust ourselves. It's futile and it's fatal to pursue this world over Jesus. By craving Jesus and His righteousness, we'll be satisfied and blessed and happy in ways we could never imagine. Because Jesus says so. That's not like 
health, wealth, and prosperity. That's a promise from Jesus Himself. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Man, we barely got a category for mercy today, don't we? Congratulations to the vengeful resonates with us because it's so often how we treat each other. But mercy? No. no. We, we have to step back and look at that word to even start to get our heads around it. We usually want nothing to do with suffering. We usually want nothing to do with any kind of pain or struggle. Certainly, Not ours, but absolutely not someone else's suffering. Those we disagree with? Forget about them. Let's just crush them and cause them to fear us. But once again, Jesus, the most humble and kind man who ever lived, calls us to more. He calls us to mercy and says that even we will receive mercy. I don't very often quote the same theologian in the same sermon twice, but I'm going to do that. John Calvin's also helpful here. He uses the word paradox, so it's like, okay, I feel like he wrote that 500 years ago for this sermon. He had me in mind. No, I'm just kidding. Calvin, this paradox too contradicts the judgment of men. The world reckons those to be happy who give themselves no concern about the distresses of others, but consult their own ease. Christ says that those are happy who are not only prepared to endure their own afflictions, but to take a share in the afflictions of others, who assist the wretched who willingly take part with those who are in distress and readily render assistance. They shall attain mercy, not only with God, but also among men. Though the world may sometimes be ungrateful and return the very worst reward to those who have done acts of kindness, it ought to be reckoned enough that grace is laid up with God for the merciful and humane, so that they in turn will find Him to be gracious and merciful. This world cannot get enough of that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. What is a pure heart? Jesus isn't saying here that a pure heart is one that's completely devoid of sin. Now, that is the standard. We are called to be perfect. Jesus, matter of fact, in this very same sermon, a few verses down the line, says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard. But we can't achieve that. We'll never be perfect this side of eternity. Yes, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Yes, we are free from the wages of sin. Yes, we are cleaned. Yes, we are seated with God in the heavenly realms. But as long as we're breathing, we're sinning. And we're sinning a lot. And we sin some more. The pure heart then that Jesus is talking about here is one that desperately seeks God. Those who are pure in heart, those who are blessed, because they they will settle for nothing less than a deep and increasing reality with God. That's what David had in mind in Psalm 51 when he said, Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God. He wanted God, David wanted God to be more real to him and more satisfying to him than his sin ever could be. The pure in heart want God's purity. They want His cleanliness. They want God Himself 
above all else. There's a, there's a song that says, let my sin be bitter so you are sweet. That's what the pure in heart strive for. Jesus promises the pure in heart will see God. Those who seek God in this way, who desperately crave this type of reality with God, they will experience deep, intimate fellowship in a relationship with Him. And we can bank on that because Jesus said it Himself. How is that not the happiest news of all? Jesus promises not to withhold Himself from us when we seek Him and we are open to Him and we crave Him. We hold up the empty hands of faith and He gives us Himself. That's so much better than looking good in the eyes of the world. That's so much better than saving face and looking perfect. That's so much better than never getting exposed for our sin. The best thing that could happen to some of us is for everyone to find out who we really are. Because then we can stop playing games with God and He can bless us. The pure in heart are too desperate to settle for anything less. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Or congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall have the last word. Being a peacemaker seems as foreign to us as being merciful or meek. We love getting in the last word. That's the entire reason Twitter exists. We have to have a clap back, right? We can't just shut up and take it. So many people pursue satisfaction and happiness by trying to argue their position, prove themselves right, destroy or crush their opponent. Have you watched cable news? Being argumentative today is supremely valued, but it's exhausting, it's draining. It's life depleting. We'll never find happiness there. But Jesus says Christians are peacemakers. He's not calling us to please everyone. He's not calling us to approve of everything, but He is calling us to avoid, avoid insignificant quarrels. He is calling us to settle differences. He is calling us to advise people to live peaceably. He is calling us to take away hate and strife. That's what peacemakers do. That's what children of God do. And that's who we're called to be. Has anyone ever said that we have too much peace? Now, it's enough peace. We're, we're good. We need some more strife. Can you bring some more strife? We need more of that. No one's ever said that. So let's be peacemakers as children of God. Jesus blesses that. He causes us to be happy in that type of work. And then we'll round out this passage. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or congratulations to the popular, for this world lies at your feet. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This world hates Jesus. It always has. It always will. And this world hates His followers. Among the many promises Jesus gives His people, one of the hardest is this, that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. But Jesus is telling us to rejoice in that. Step back from that for a minute and look at that statement. 
It's paradoxical in itself. Who wants to be persecuted? Who, much less, who wants to be happy and rejoice in persecution? Are we supposed to like being rejected? Are we supposed to like being reviled and ridiculed and hated? No. But we are supposed to rest in this promise. That it will be those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake that He gives the kingdom of heaven to. With that understanding, we can say with Paul, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. That glory is the kingdom. That glory is Jesus Christ Himself. What if this God-hating, profit-killing, comfort-seeking, self-aggrandizing, pretentious, argumentative, and arrogant world loved you? One, what does that say about you? And two, will that bring you happiness? Like real, eternal, lasting, settled happiness? Or will we believe what Jesus said and rest our hope in the promise that we will inherit the kingdom of God and great is our reward in heaven? So again, dead theologians, dead pastors, that's my jam. They're like my friends. I'm just a nerd who likes to... Robert makes fun of me. I sit in my office in the morning in a dark room and read theology without my light on. It's, it's what I do. But the Puritans, who I'm often, who I'm very fond of, had a phrase, memento mori. It means remember death in Latin. They kept that in front of them to remember what Jesus had promised those who love Him. It reminded them that we, we really lose nothing when we depart from this earth. But we gain everything if we're in Christ. We can either have on our tombstone, here lies John. He had everything in life except for Jesus. Or it can read, he had nothing in life except for Jesus, and now he has gained everything. He is happy. Settled happiness like that is found nowhere else but in Jesus, our living hope. And here's what that looks like. The Scottish preacher, Ebenezer Erskine. I, guys, I, kept, I keep doing it. He lived from 1680 to 1754. He once visited a woman on, his deathbed, on her deathbed. When she assured him that she was ready to die and be with Christ, Erskine asked her, but are you not afraid that you'll slip through his fingers in the end? That's impossible because of what you've always told us, she said. And what is that, he asked. He, she replied, that we are united to Him, and so we are part of His body. I cannot slip through His fingers because I am one of His fingers. Besides, Christ has paid too high of a price for my redemption to leave me in Satan's hand. If I were to be lost, He would lose more than I because I would lose my salvation, but He would lose His glory because one of His sheep would be lost. That is true, settled Confident happiness in something this world knows nothing about. That's true blessing. Nothing in this world can ever come close to that. Well, that's my sermon. Let's pray. Father, we, I'd like to invite the band up as well, by the way. Father, we thank you so much, God, for, for your word, for your promises. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us to find satisfaction or... Um, fulfillment or joy or happiness in what this world can offer. 
We thank You for promising the kingdom of heaven to those who seek You, who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who are peaceable, who hunger and thirst after You. Lord, give us confidence to rest in that happiness, in that promise. Let the things of this world be bitter, Lord, so that You are sweet. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're going to close this way. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Um, we will we'll have some people, some of our people will be here to serve you at the front and in the back. This was given to us by Jesus Himself. This, the Lord's Supper and baptism didn't come to us from Christian tradition. The Lord Jesus gave us this on His own. And the Apostle Paul says that when we take the table, when we, when we take the elements, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. This is sacred to us as Christians. Because it commemorates the very reason that we can call ourselves Christians. That the bread representing Jesus' body that was broken for us, and the blood that represents Jesus, and the wine that represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us, that makes us right with God. So if you're a believer, if you've rested your faith and your hope and your trust and your happiness in Jesus, you're welcome to partake. So you stand and you follow the person in front of you, you come and you receive, you take and you eat. Lord be with you.